Welcome to The Art of Significance with your host, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, university professor, gold record songwriter, and award-winning athlete, Dan Clark. Get ready for engaging discussions with some of the most influential people in the world who will impart their wisdom, stories, and inspiration on why and how to achieve the level beyond success. Now here's your host, Dan Clark. Welcome wherever you are in the multiple countries and um, and uh, hundreds of thousands of folks tuning in to Influencers Channel. It's an honor to have you uh, tune in, reminding you that this is also a podcast on demand. You can listen to it anytime, anywhere, in any time zone. And I really believe today's show is going to be one that you're going to want to share with everyone with whom you live and work perhaps worship, um, because one of the most important things we can do is talk about the 4th of July and what it's truly a celebration of, not just our nation's independence, but are we as American citizens worth fighting for? Not every one of us can put on a uniform. Not every one of us can con- can qualify to serve our country, less than 1% of our population <clears throat> actually serves in the military. And oftentimes we say, oh, it's because they have a police record or they're not physically fit or they don't have a, a high school diploma or a GED, the equivalent. We always think there's some reason, some excuse why they weren't able to qualify to be invited. Remember, this is an all-volunteer force. And when we go into the recruiter's office, we fill out paperwork. They give us a physical examination, obviously, an aptitude test. They try to figure out if we're a fit or not. But the old, old, old school stereotypical pigeonhole of someone enlisting in the military was some lost soul who didn't have anything else to do with their life. They lacked discipline. And so their parents or their grandparents or their friends encouraged them to join the military. At least it's a steady paycheck. Uh, Maybe that's what they're lacking in their life, some direction, some focus. And so go sign up and join the the military. That is not the case. It's an all-volunteer service. And the only reason why 1% of America's population qualify to serve in the military is because apparently 1% of America's population think like a champion, want to take themselves to the highest level, crave the, the opportunity to live by a higher standard of excellence, to participate in something larger than themselves. The famous Army Ranger Creed, it's an acronym, R-A-N-G-E-R. And when you graduate from the Ranger School, you live by this ranger creed from the rest for the rest of your life, which holds you to a higher standard. It holds you to a higher standard of excellence, strength, and diversity, and everything else that goes with it. And when I'm speaking in the corporate arena, I love to ask my audiences, the corporate construct, do you have such a creed in your company, in your organization, that holds you and your subordinates, you and your coworkers, you and your fellow leaders to a higher standard of performance. And if not, why not? And if when, why not now? 
And obviously, that begins with holding ourselves to a higher standard. And I challenge anyone within the sound of my voice to look up the Ranger Creed, to look up the credo of the Special Forces, the Green Berets, to get your hands on the, 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 the code of ethics and the highest standard of performance, the credo for the Navy SEALs. And ask yourself, could you hold yourself to such a high standard? And if not, why not? That's what's going to continuously make America the greatest country on the planet. But here's my point that ties into the theme of today's show. Not every one of us has the opportunity to put on a uniform and fight for freedom and fight for our country. But every single one of us has the opportunity to become that citizen worth fighting for. That human being who wakes up early and stays up late, who devotes ourselves to service before self and excellence in all we do, living our lives by integrity, as we learn in the three core values of the United States Air Force, which permeate in every set of core values in the other services. So this show, as you know from all my shows in, 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 in past, that I try to couple the guests on my show to complement one another and so that when we're through listening and sharing this sacred time together that we'll never get back, that we honestly say, I like me best when I'm with you, I want to see you again. We honestly know that we can take ourselves to the next level. So to become that human being worth fighting for, that best version of ourselves being all that we can possibly be because we're going to make a lousy somebody else. As I've said so many times, if you spend your entire life trying to be like somebody else or be somebody else, who's going to be you? What I want to do today is focus in on why we need to avoid uh, drugs, medication, or at least to use them, learn to use them more responsibly. And my first guest is an expert in, in drug use and, and the reasons, no excuses, the reasons for overuse, overdose, death by opioids. And just to set the tone, let's just make it clear because this was alarming to me when I looked up the statistics. Physical dependency to opioids can happen in just seven days. It takes just one day to become physically dependent on fentanyl, two days to be physically dependent on uh, mepiridine. I hope I say these right. doesn't matter. Number, it takes three days to become physically dependent on hydrocortisone or, sorry, uh, hydrocodone. It takes four days for oxycodone, five days to become physically dependent on hydromorphone, six days to become physically dependent on oxycodone and uh, uh, acetaminophen. I can't wait to get the, the, good, the good man on the phone. Uh, seven days to become physically dependent on tramadol. Even though I completely obliterated, obliterated the correct pronunciation of these opi- opioids, I wanted to lay the foundation to get us thinking about how easy it is for us to become chemically dependent, physically dependent, but more importantly, I want to talk about why someone actually puts themselves in, in a predicament to become addicted, and then what do we do about it? 
My first guest is Dr. John Dybin. And with his multifaceted experience and leadership in the substance use disorder treatment field, Dr. John Dybin brings a remarkable skill set of pastor, counselor, teacher, and respected expert to his patients. Think about this. As chief clinical officer at Origins Behavioral Healthcare, John provides oversight to the company's programs. John builds on his expertise through research and nationwide speaking engagements on addiction, spirituality, and related topics. I really want to have him explain the correlation between addiction and spirituality as a solution. John's academic training includes Bachelor of Science in Psychology, Master of Arts in Conflict Management. The list goes on and on. Most importantly to this program, he's a certified mental health professional in the state of Florida, and John is a musician. <laughs> Surprisingly not. I mean, not surprising. John is a musician, a writer, and a private pilot. I love that. And he enjoys spending time with his family. <clears throat> with no further ado, I want to bring on to the show Dr. John Dybin. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. I know I uh, I, I brutally misquoted the, the names of some of those opioids, but my whole point was obvious that right. it's nothing to be messing around with, and we need to have an expert like you to explain to us what's going on in our country, how the elderly are, are, are getting so caught up in the addiction process, and I, I really want you to just talk to us about what you need us to know so that when we get through with this interview, people say, I'm so glad I listened to Dr. John, and I want to share this interview with everybody. Well, I really appreciate it because you, you hit it on the head. I mean, this is there are literally tens of thousands of people dying in our nation every year. And when you talk about uh, our nation and, and, you know, the sacrifices that people make for it, today in 2018, the leading cause of accidental death in our nation is not car accidents, plane crashes, boats, you know, it, it is drug overdose, the number one cause of accidental death in our nation. So the first thing is, is that we have to recognize that we have, we truly do have a public health epidemic in our nation today. We need to know that a lot of those have to, a lot of those drug overdoses are from opiates. And, and you listed, it doesn't even matter um, if how you pronounced them. The bottom line is everything you listed is an opiate. And essentially, that list, for your listeners, uh, they're, they're probably familiar with heroin. We've all heard of heroin. Well, heroin is an opiate. And all of those things that you listed, the brain sees them all as if you're putting heroin in the brain. And, and people have to, we've got to get this idea out of our head that because a doctor gives me something or because it comes in pill form, that it is, it is safe. The brain is the organ in the body that is most important in processing drugs. People think of the liver and the kidneys and other things. The brain is what really processes the drugs. The brain is what, what the, the, causes dependence and, and addiction. That's where those things happen. The human brain does not know if the drug you're putting into it was given to you by a pharmacist or by a street dealer. And so we have to recognize that though all drugs have some, and medications have some use, 
that we have since the 80s and 90s in our nation, we have been dramatically overusing opiate medications, and it has led to the deaths of tens of thousands, and by this point, to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. So you ask the question, how does this happen? So first of all, there, there are different types of, there are different reasons why people become addicted. Some people become addicted to drugs um, because they, they mess around with drugs, <laughs> because, because they experiment with them in high school or college, um, and you can have, you know, 10 people, and some of those people, and they can all do the same drugs, some of them will become develop addiction, and some of them will not. It's it, we know that there are genetic factors that are involved in this. So it's sort of like this: you can have ten people that will eat the exact same food. They'll eat fast food and kind of the typical American garbage diet that some of us, even myself, tend to indulge in too much. Ten people will eat exactly the same things. Some of those people will develop a disease called diabetes, and others will not. Um, and some of that has to do simply with genes. And it's the same thing with addiction, that some people will have a genetic predisposition to develop an addiction, which is a disease wherein the brain forces you to seek, compulsively seek drugs, even when it causes problems in your life. So a person might develop the disease because they experimented with drugs in college and they got, people will say they got hooked. Well, their brain developed this addiction. Some people, though, will develop addiction because they had an injury and their physician gave them opiates and they took the opiates and became dependent and eventually addicted on them at that point. I think we spend a lot of time in our nation trying to figure out why people become addicted. And, and one of the first things that, that we've got to do is simply recognize that once a person has addiction, they have a disease that needs medical and clinical treatment. So there, I'm going to pause and just kind of overview, make sure that I'm making the points. The first thing is that people have to recognize that all opiates have significant risks, and just because it comes in a pill form or from a doctor doesn't mean it's safe. Second, okay, let me let me interrupt you as we go, Doc, because this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I had my hip replaced on December nineteenth, right. and they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give you this pain medication intravenously to get ahead of the pain. They're going to they they called it pain management. Then mm-hmm. they gave me Profifol, you know, to help me sleep. And I said, mm-hmm. isn't that the Michael Jackson death drug? And the anesthesiologist didn't think I was funny. And then mm-hmm. they said, we're going to give you uh, Oxycontin. And I said, mm-hmm. I don't want to take it. And they said, well, no, it's protocol. You have to take it. So knowing the risks of becoming addicted, some people will, some people will not. What is an alternative to having our doctors, our physicians prescribe this pain medication? Because we all know now about about pain management. When, when we can get a, ahead of it, obviously it, it stops the chemical reaction in our bodies, and we don't need we don't have time to get into all that. But what would be an alternative before you get to step number two? If 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 someone is injured, and protocol is take this pill, what are our what else can we do? What's what's our alternative? Right. 
Well, there's a couple of different things. One is that, unfortunately, now, now for your, in your situation where you're talking post-operative pain, always they're going to prescribe uh, opiates for post-operative pain or a severe injury or something like that. But historically, what we've done since the 90s is we've said, here, you must have it. It's protocol. Here is 30 days worth of OxyContin for your post-operative pain. And and on top of that, what we've done is for people with chronic pain, we've said, we're just going to put you on opiates forever. Because Purdue Pharma came out in the early 90s and, and put billions into a brilliant campaign where they told doctors that this, bro- this wonderful new medicine called OxyContin was going to be the miracle cure for all pain. They should give it to all their patients, and it has no addictive potential. And that's what doctors were told for years and years and years and years and years. And, and it's only in 2016, now that we've got, obviously we know it's addictive and we know it's killed hundreds of thousands, but in 2016, the Centers for Disease Control finally came out and answered that very question. They said they actually put out new prescribing guidelines to physicians. And here are some of the things that they said. One of the things is that opiates should not ever be your first line that for chronic pain, I'll go back to acute pain in a second, for chronic pain, opiates should never be your first line of defense. And in fact, we now have good research that shows that for chronic pain, over beyond a few weeks, opiates will actually make your pain worse and not better. For acute pain, like what you're talking about, Doctors should continue to have, you know, uh, opioid medications that are, that's what they're there for. But the CDC guidelines say you should, that the, the doctors now need to be extremely careful, that they need to decrease the dose and only give a few days uh, at maximum at a time. And what's interesting is that new research that was just published last year There was a double-blind study that gave people with acute pain opiates, and it gave them acetaminophen. Those who took the the, the, the the over-the-counter medication. So this is a great example of where there may be, and there certainly is, a place for those strong opiate medications post-operative patients, and also patients who are, are, are in their last, you know, days and weeks and, and, and that are, are in hospice care and that are dying and in palliative care. Those are appropriate there. But sure. for long-term, it, they are ineffective at, at best and, and more harm than good generally. And even for people like you in your situation, the new guidelines say that doctors should be very careful about giving small few-day doses, and then seeing you again and checking up on you again. All right. So I'm fascinated by this, brother. I appreciate you being on my show. You bet. So I played football for 13 years. I've been an athlete my whole life. We all know there's a difference between injury and pain. And never Mm -hmm. once did any of my coaches or any of my doctors, team doctors, expect us to play with injury. No, go get fixed, you know, rehab correctly, get back on the field as quickly as possible. But every one of us was expected to play with pain. So I'm intrigued by the psychology studies and the philosophy and the religion and the spirituality that you bring to your practice, Doc. Talk to us about about preventing 
I don't even know if that's the right word, although that's what we need to be about. But talk to us about the amalgamation of everything that you are an expert in that you bring to the table in counseling someone who is currently addicted or has a loved one who's addicted. What can we say? How can we help them? How do you change their mindset? How do you get their spirituality involved in this in this solution or in the prevention? So, so for me, I, for one thing is that, that I, I find a model. There is a model out there that is, is brilliant and that I, I find is, you know, I've studied religion and philosophy and, and psychology and all that out the yin-yang. But the model that I see in the 12 steps, the, the, those old 12 steps that you see in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, for me, that is the, the simplest and most accessible recipe for spiritual health. And, and when I say spiritual health, what I mean is this, and I, I mean beyond, far beyond religion. Uh, what I mean is that all of us are spiritual beings, meaning that we literally have spiritus. The Latin word spiritus is where we get words like spiritual, and, and it literally means breath or life. And, and we as people, I, I, I would ask patients, I would ask every listener, what is the most important thing that you will do today? And we all come up with different answers. But I'll tell you what the answer is. The most important thing you will do today is breathe. But what is the thing that you'll think least about? You'll think least about breathing. And so I ask, what is the most important thing that you have? The most important thing that you have is the gift of life. And, and it is something that, that you know that you have, but it is transcendent. It, you can't hold it. You can't point to it. You can point to your ear or your eyes or your nose, but you can't point to your life. And yet, you know that you have it. And so you know that you, the, the idea of spirituality is what are you doing with this gift of life? And so here's the, the crux of it. I believe that healthy spirituality because we are creatures of, that have life, we are spiritual beings, healthy spirituality is being connected to life. And unhealthy spirituality is being disconnected from life. And I don't believe that you, you, the only unhealthy spirituality is when someone is in active addiction. But I do know that when you are in active addiction, you are completely disconnected from life. And, and so when you come out of active addiction, when you begin to get healing, there is, is a sense of emptiness. And so it is imperative that you develop a connection to life. And so when we talk about uh, recovery being a spiritual process, that's what we mean. We don't mean that, that, that somebody, you know, well, heck, somebody may decide to become religious or, or not. That doesn't matter. The, the question is, are you connected to life? And whether you are addicted or whether you are not, you could very well, if you examine your life, you could look and you say, you know what, I'm not really connected. I'm not connected to myself. I'm not truly connected to other people. I'm not connected to all of life around me. And so I would invite anyone who says, I want to be connected. I want peace to, to seek recovery. Uh, and so it is, you know, it's something that really it was, it was um, Carl Jung who was writing back and forth between he and Bill Wilson were writing back and forth. Bill Wilson's one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was Carl Jung who began to say, this is what you guys are doing is deeply spiritual and, and, and you're, you're seeking something 
big. As so, from a spiritual perspective, I, I think it's it's all about that. It's all about moving from a disconnected life to a connected life. And what's interesting when you you talk about pain and and the difference between pain and injury, from a psychological perspective, pain, our brain modifies pain. And the best example is this. Anybody can remember being a kid, you stub your toe, you hit your, kick your toe on something, and you say, ouch, that hurts. But then you look down. I can remember that I did this, I kicked my toe, it hurt, but then I looked down and all of a sudden, I saw that my toe, which I thought was maybe just, you know, kicked, it was bleeding and bloody and nasty in this disgusting mess. And what do I, as a kid, all of a sudden do? I start to howl because my pain, it hurts much more now that I've seen it and it looks bad. What does that mean? That means that we experience pain, but our brain also mediates how we how much pain we feel so when it comes to to life and living if you think that you should never experience any pain then then you got a, some hard realities coming because life has some pain but but people both through psychological techniques and through the development of faith and and spiritual connection can actually learn to modify how they experience pain. And, and they can, I've seen people who were hooked on opiates and believed that they could never be without them because their pain was so great, learn how to live their lives with tolerable, not no pain, but tolerable pain um, and that wasn't total misery simply by learning to, to modify it through using cognitive psychological techniques and faith. I love it. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, Doc, we're, uh, we're out of time, but I'm fascinated by the title of your Origins Behavioral Healthcare. Tell us how we can join your tribe, how we can find out about these steps, how we can learn more from you. You're one of the best experts I've ever had on this show. I want to have you back. You're fascinating. You're the total package. So. What is Origins Behavioral Programs? And I suppose it's in Florida, but how do we how do we get a hold of you? How do we keep in touch? Well, we're in Florida and in Texas. And uh, the easiest thing is just go to the website. Go to originsrecovery.com, and you can connect with all sorts of uh, information and, and contact us. And there's blogs, and there's writings, and there's ways to get a hold of me and everybody else. So uh, originsrecovery.com. And I appreciate it. Love to be back. No, I love it. And next time on the show, Doc, we're going to talk about music and writing and being a pilot. Three of our all right, three of our our, our 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 similarities, brother. Thank you so much. This is Dan Clark, VoiceAmerica.com, the Influencers Channel. My my first guest has been Dr. John Dybin, and with his multifaceted experience and leadership in the substance use disorder treatment field, Dr. John. He actually brings a remarkable skill set of pastor, counselor, teacher, and respected expert to his patients. So again, as he said, I challenge all of our listeners, every single one of us, to go to originsbehavioralhealthcare.com and uh, join his tribe. And let's see if we can support him and his, his cause as he helps us become the best versions of ourselves. Let's take a commercial break. Don't go anywhere. My next guest is retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Mark Hassara. Uh, and uh, he's a KC-135 instructor pilot, 
an aircraft I've been on multiple times. I can't wait to find out what's going on in his life. A veteran of four wars. And let's talk about the significance of July 4th coming up in a couple of days. We'll be back in a moment. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. If you're an event meeting planner like me, you have two ongoing challenges. You can't afford to have a speaker who bombs. And when you do have an amazing speaker, who in the world do you bring into next year's meeting that will top them? Well, you never have to worry again. Book Dan Clark. Dan Clark is one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. He's been named one of the top 10 speakers in the world. He's known for customizing his speech around your meeting theme. So your people leave with benefits that last a lifetime. Here's the number, 1-800-676-1121. Or just visit danclark.com. Become a member of voiceamerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. You're listening to The Art of Significance featuring your host, Dan Clark. If you want to join in on this week's discussion, give us a call at 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop Dan a line via email to danclark at xmission.com. Now back to the Art of Significance. Here again is Dan Clark. Yeah, welcome back with my next guest, Mark Hassara. And I get so excited anytime I get a chance to talk to someone from the military. But Mark has had an extraordinary long career where he has literally saved thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives in a very unique way. Mark's a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, and uh, he was a KC-135 instructor pilot and expert in air mobility operations. Think about this. Mark is a veteran of four wars, and he directed the creation of the world's only graduate-level air refueling institution, the KC-135 Weapons School. For those of you who don't understand, a KC-135, it's a 707 airframe converted into the refueling tanker, which will eventually be replaced by the, the 46, but that's been so long time coming that this KC-135 has been our workhorse, which has allowed us to refuel 
our jets, our coalition partners' jets, and uh, maintain air superior air superiority, as we say, which is the critical element to every war. Eight days after 9-11, Mark began a series of deployments flying missions to direct all refueling operations across the Middle East and the Horn of Africa. Yeah, I've been to Djibouti a few times. As the chief of the air refueling control team, Mark's team was responsible for transferring over a billion pounds of fuel to coalition aircraft. The cool thing now, Mark, in his retirement, he's authored Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit, released by Simon & Schuster in November of 2017, and the book offers a thrilling eyewitness account of modern warfare with inspirational stories and morale lessons for people on the battlefield, in boardrooms, and in their everyday lives. Mark, welcome to my show, brother. Let's just talk about your amazing career. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I got to see a lot of the world uh, from a 707. I used to kid all my wife's friends that I passed gas for a living. Oh, that's funny. That is very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to my world. That's what I do just from a different end of the of the plane, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, know, teach my teach my listeners the process of refueling a, a an aircraft. I think that is so amazing where you're flying at altitude. You have to mm-hmm. regulate your airspeed. Teach us a little bit from a naive uh, civilian's perspective exactly what you do when you take off with this jet full of fuel and how long the boom is, which means you have to coordinate a supersonic jet or a helicopter to pull up right behind you. And as a pilot, you have to maneuver in such a way that you can actually refuel that aircraft in the air. And I think the boom is, what, 35 feet long, 16 feet long until you start unraveling it. Teach us about that. So, first of all, your listeners need to understand that we're flying a 60-year-old airplane. Eisenhower signed the check for this thing, okay? That's how long this thing's been around. I take off with more gas in one mission, 180,000 pounds, Dan, than a normal American family will use in 27 years. And when we take off, we go to a sanitized airspace, kind of our playground, and we will orbit as the airplanes come up to us. So we have a boom operator that sits in the back with a flying boom, and he or she will extend this into a receptacle in like a fighter plane or a bomber and intelligence reconnaissance airplane uh, and that's how the Air Force refuels. Now the Navy does it a little bit different. We have what's called a drogue that will attach to the airplane. It looks like a badminton shuttlecock and they have a probe that comes out of the airplane and sticks into that basket a lot like the uh, hummingbirds on your feeder in the backyard and various airplanes will take various amounts of gas. An F-15 Dan uses 8,000 pounds of gas an hour at its tactical speeds, but uses 2,000 pounds a minute when it's an afterburner trying to chase somebody down. That's why you have air refueling. And so when an air, so when a supersonic jet, when an F-18, when an F-16, F-15 takes off, 
in an air-to-air combat mission, an air-to-ground mission, what, how long are they usually in the air before they have to refuel? Depends on the airplane. F-15 is about every 40 minutes, F-16 about, and F-18 is about every 30 minutes to keep filled with gas. So in order again, for us it depends to ex- on their burn rates and so forth. So, so in order for us to execute, will refuel, in order for us to execute the war, the war, if these aircraft took off and after they fulfilled that mission, if they had to return back to the base from which they took off, we would never be able to accomplish the mission. They need you more than any other aircraft, more than any other mission in the in in the air force or in the military. Correct. That's why we reach out and touch everybody, Dan. Literally everybody. Not just the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Marine Corps, but internationally, too. There's airplanes, KC-135s, KC-10s flying right now over in the Gulf, Dan, that are refueling the entire coalition of airplanes. It could be the Canadians. It could be the, uh, the French. It could be uh, the Brits. It could be the United Arab Emirates. We literally reach out and touch everybody with the 60-year-old workhorse in the KC-135. And the KC-10 is not uh, too much older. It came out in the early 80s. Sure. And it's a normal process that we do. And some of these airplanes will re- refuel four to five times during a three-hour mission. Or in the case of the B-2 that uh, would go over to Libya in 2017 in January, those two B-2s, Clip-11 and Clip-12, refueled 15 times and took 955,000 pounds of gas to accomplish their mission, Dan. So they took off from Whiteman in in Missouri and flew nonstop, (laughs) dropped their bombs, and then returned home on the same mission without ever touching the ground because of your amazing mission. Yes, that is correct. Okay, so you're a veteran of four wars. How have things changed? The very first war, uh, when did we go into the Middle East the first time? 1991, uh, the Desert Storm War. It was the first war against Saddam. I took off the very first night refueling. They're called wild weasels. They go in and they hunt the surface-to-air missile sites and the radar stand and, and destroy them with a, a, a radar-seeking missile. And uh, they were all named after beer, Dan. Coors, Lone Star, and Michelob flights. And... Each of the receivers had their own unique call signs that allowed us to know what airplanes were coming up to refuel behind us. And that that first night was uh, my first combat mission. It was pretty scary because the Iraqis launched MiGs and uh, his defenses were pretty stirred up. But these weasels had the job of taking down the air defenses of Baghdad and off they went, led by a guy by the name of John Boy, and uh, he's become a good friend. And that was just the start of what we've been doing in the Middle East because we have been doing Operation Northern Watch, Operation Southern Watch, then again into the second Gulf War, uh, and tankers have been involved in all of that. Yes, sir. So teach us the mentality, the, the mindset, when, when you know that you're a high-valued target. If the, if the bad guys know that you are the lifeblood source, mm-hmm. obviously you have a giant target on your plane, and they would much yeah. prefer to shoot down a KC-135 tanker than a fighter pilot. 
than a fighter jet because you're the ones that keep the air war alive. You're the ones that allow us to have air superiority. So how do you prepare yourself? You, 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 you know, walk us through a, a typical mission. You're kicking back, you know, your rotation's up and all of a sudden you got to board that plane. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me how you get your heart right, how you get your mind right, how you get your spirit right. And how, how long are you airborne typically because you go in this orbit so that all these planes can find you and get refueled. But mm-hmm. if they come up to get gas from you, how long can you stay up in the air once you've prepared yourself mentally taken off and then how long do you stay up there? So mentally preparation for me was walking around the airplane, doing my walk around and thinking through the mission and the things that I had to do. And it's really about teamwork, Dan, and it's a great example of teamwork because, yes, I am up there in a totally defenseless airplane. I have no devices on the airplane, Dan, that tell me if I'm being attacked, if I'm even locked up on radar. But the teamwork aspect of this, Dan, is the Airborne Warning and Control System, the AWACS, watching out in front of us to see who's coming, who's going to attack us. We always had a defensive counter-air F-15 four-ship out somewhere in front of us to defend us that those MiGs would have to get through to come to us. So actually, I felt very comfortable because I know that commitments were made to protect me and my crew and maybe the two or three or four or five airplanes behind me, Dan, with these other fighters that are out there that are going to protect me so that I can offload my gas and these guys can go and do their jobs. And the rivet joint, which is an electronic intelligence airplane, the AWACS, the F-15s, all of them are working together to defend us other high-value assets like the AWACS, like the rivet joint, uh, like uh, the, the joint surveillance target attack radar airplane that's watching everything on the ground. It's a great teamwork effort to be able to accomplish these missions. And I just had one cog in that, and that was I had all the gas. I had to plan all the gas. I had to execute the mission to go up and do that. And there was only one or two times, Dan, where I really felt, you know, hey, these guys are coming to get us. But immediately on the first night of Desert Storm, um, the F-15s, it was one of the greatest radio calls I've ever heard in my life. Vengel check, two, three, four. Sickle check, two, three, four. Mobile check, two, three, four. Quaker check, two, three, four. All of those F-15s checking on the radio, pushing across in Iraq, and they went across and shot down all those airplanes. So we're pretty overprotected airplane back there because everybody realizes, Dan, the mission doesn't happen without us. The mission doesn't happen without fuel. And it's amounts of fuel, Dan, that people can't even imagine. I mentioned to you in the email, we offloaded enough gas in the 26 days of Iraqi Freedom's invasion to allow a Ford F-150 truck to make 2,685 round trips to the moon. That's how much <laughs> yeah. gas we're talking. That's that's crazy. Well, I want to talk yeah. about your book, man. Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. You know, I've been in the cockpit. I've been in the back. I've seen what your mission is. 
I mm-hmm. honor you. But let's talk about this book, man. It sounds exciting, and it's got inspirational stories and morale lessons for people, uh, or moral lessons. I like to call morale and moral moral lessons for people on the battlefield, in boardrooms, and in their everyday lives. Teach us about about this book. For a long time, Dan, my kids have always told me, Dad, you need to write a book. You've been involved in so many things. And why I wrote this book is to show people and to illustrate to them a highly trained professional group of people that are really not in the limelight, but are in the background, that are performing these missions all over the world. And to show people not only the types of missions that they're flying, but all of the planning that goes into accomplishing these missions and the stories behind these great stories of courage and innovation and even compassion uh, of going out and saving people's lives when there's an airplane crash in Guam and, and, um, or there's a tsunami in the Far East and so forth. It always takes tankers to do that. And there was books on snipers. There was books on by fighter pilots and so forth. And I thought, you know, it's time to tell the tanker story because there truly is an amazing story when you think about how long we've been around. And refueling's been around since 1921 when they did the first refueling between uh, two airplanes and a guy walking off the wing of a Curtis Jenny with a five-gallon gas can on his back. <laughs> and it's not... A, isn't that crazy? It's yeah, not a new concept. Amazing. You know, you reminded me, and, um, one of the great, I had a chance to interview Magic Johnson, the great NBA basketball superstar. And his story mm-hmm. was, you know, he's a big, tall guy. And growing up, his dad convinced him that it was just as cool to make a cool and amazing pass as it was to shoot and score. And so that's how he became yes, a point guard. He focused in on being behind the scenes, making things happen. And that's what you're about. So, you know, I, I had an opportunity to uh, tour the the uh, Air Force Museum a few times. I go every time I'm at Wright Pat. But my very first time I was there, I got a VIP personal tour from the curator, retired uh, two-star general. And uh, about 10 minutes into the tour, he said, Dan, the, uh, the tour is over. And I said, General Metcalf, what do you mean? He goes, you don't get it. He said, this is not a museum of inanimate, inanimate objects. It's a, it's a museum of the stories of the men and women who, who flew these jets, who, who helped one another. So in the remaining minutes of the show, tell us, tell us one story that comes to mind of an inspirational story that I, that I think obviously we'll find in your book. Uh, again, encouraging everyone to buy this book called Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit. And it was released by Simon & Schuster in November of 2017. So tell us one story that comes to mind, brother, that you think is an inspirational story that kind of explains what you do as a, as a tanker pilot. I have one that I think you'll enjoy because it involves Faith Hill. During the invasion of Iraq, as the guys were getting closer, guys and gals were getting closer to Baghdad on the ground, we realized that we needed to move the gas into Iraqi airspace. And they were still shooting at us. The MiGs weren't flying, but there was a lot of stuff coming up off the ground. And now we're going to put an air refueling 
anchor area. And let me describe that just really quick. It's 30, 30 miles wide, 70 miles long, and about 4,000 feet deep. That's kind of our playground. And again, we're a defenseless airplane, and we had to move the gas up toward Baghdad in order to be able to save people's lives and keep those fighters and those bombers overhead, the guys that were and gals that were going into Baghdad. And when we all gathered around a table with the fighter guys and the bomber guys, you know, I told them, I says, you really need to help us because we're really hanging it out by putting tankers this close to the capital of Iraq, the place that we're trying to find Saddam. And I'm going to put a lot of trust in you guys to defend us, to take care of us, and to tell us, you know, if we're being shot at or if something's coming up after us, and I want you guys to go and find it and kill it. And I'm putting a lot of faith in you guys to go do that uh, that mission and protect us so that we can give you the gas so you guys can do your mission of helping save guys and gals' lives that are on the ground that are making this push into Baghdad. And the obvious name for that air refueling area was Faith. I named all of the air refueling areas inside Iraqi airspace during the invasion, Dan, after female country western singers. <laughs> and it was appropriate to name... It was appropriate to name that one Faith because it was only 35 miles southwest of Baghdad, almost within 10 minutes flying distance of both of Saddam's big MiG bases at Al-Assad and Al-Takadam. Wow. And the fighter guys told me, we will protect you. We will take care of you. Nothing will touch you as long as you guys are there to give us the gas that we need. And it worked out perfectly because it took so little time for them to go re and refill their tanks from the, the tankers that were there and get back overhead the guys and the gals that were making the march into Baghdad. And actually the 3rd Infantry Division right underneath Faith as they made their runs into Baghdad and having the gas in the place that it needed to be with plenty of tankers there on time, on station, on altitude, we were able to not only protect but save a lot of people's lives by kind of hanging it out. And, and it was risky. And, and General Mike Mosley, one of the best commanders I've ever worked for, you know, told us, he told me, he says, Mark, we got to move the tankers into Baghdad. You guys are going to have to assume some of the risks figure out how we can defend you guys, but we got to move you guys in tomorrow night. And we did it. And wow. it was the first time it had ever been done, Dan. We'd never actually planned to put tankers in enemy airspace until uh, Iraqi freedom. Wow. Great, great story. We had uh, Reba and Shania directly south of Baghdad. We had Martina out to the west by the Syrian border. Leanne, for Leanne Rhymes, was right over oh, the Anbar funny. province. And, of course, <laughs> as you know, you cannot have female country western singers without Patsy Cline. You get she that, right? Out, uh, yeah, Patsy Cline's uh, air refueling airspace was out over Talil, out on the west. Yeah, I've been to Talil, Basra. Yeah, wow. Okay, let me put you yeah, on the hot spot. So you have, um, you have one minute 
What do you want to say to the world? And again, I want everybody to go online. I guess they can buy your book on Amazon, right? Simon & Schuster published yes. Tanker Pilot yes. Lessons from the Cockpit by, by Mark Hassara, H-A-S-A-R-A. Everybody needs to go buy one. Let's support this guy. But in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, boss, what's your message to the world? You've been in four wars. You're the proud father of, of five married for 30 years. You figured it out, brother. You really are an American hero, a world hero. Teach us. What's the message? It was the last message in my book, relationships. There are times when you're going to go through a a horrendous trial like my family did. And it's all about relationships and people reaching out to help others to put their arms around them, give them a hug, stand them up, help bear them up when they're going through these terrible trials that people go through, and spending time and ministering to those around you who need help, and don't ask them if they need help, just be proactive and go out and tell them, what can I do to help you, how can I help you, and get involved in those relationships with people around you. That's why I saved relationships for last in the book. And what a powerful metaphor. You've been refueling people's lives your whole life, good brother. Not just on the battlefield, but not just downrange. But yeah, be that refueler in anyone's life. Look around. See who seems to be running out of gas. See who seems to be struggling. Mm -hmm. And reach out and uh, do whatever we can do to refuel them. As I said at the very beginning of the show, You know, only 1% of America's population actually qualifies to volunteer to be part of our military. So the rest of us need to be that kind of a person, that kind of a human being worth fighting for. And uh, you're there to help us refuel our lives, refuel our relationships, refuel our families. And uh, I sure appreciate your friendship, brother. I appreciate you being on the show. I'm going to have you back, man. I want to hear some more stories from the war. Um, You're, you're an amazing human being. And there's only 22 in the book, Dan. Well, I got you're three awesome, more brother. stories that didn't even make the book. <laughs> well, now you know what they tell us as a, you know, I've been published a few times myself. And what they say is your readers, our readers always tell us what the next book needs to be. So there you go. As soon as we yes, keep sir. selling hundreds of thousands of copies of Tanker Pilot Lessons from the Cockpit, then we'll move on to the next one, you know, maybe, uh, you know, what you learned once you landed or something. I don't know what the title is, but yeah. anyway, Actually, we're I'm running out of fiction. time, Mark. I, I appreciate you so much. Let's, let's connect off the air and uh, let's, uh, let's go out on the town. I want to hear more and more stories and get to know you much better belly to belly. So thank you, sir, for the opportunity of having me on. No, thank you. God bless you for serving our country. Fourth of July isn't just to celebrate our independence, but it's to take the time necessary, ladies and gentlemen, to thank a soldier, an airman, a a marine, a sailor, and do more than just thank them for their service, but thank their families, because not just the person in uniform serves, but the entire family serves, and because we're Air Force guys talking here on the air, Mark, you know, the three core values of the United States Air Force, which apply across the board with all military services, we need to live our lives by integrity or with integrity with service before self and a commitment to excellence in all we do. Obviously, Mark, you've done that your entire life in uniform and out of uniform. Thanks so much. God bless you and your family. Thank you, sir. Thank you for blessing my family. Uh, You're wonderful. 
So this is Dan Clark on the uh, VoiceAmerica.com radio network influencers channel. Make sure you understand this is a podcast which is available for rebroadcast, not just a live show today, but you can pull it up on demand and share it with your family and friends. As I always say, remember our military and their families and our prayers and let us be the kind of person we need to be worth fighting for. Living in America doesn't necessarily make us Americans. We need to uh, we need to engage and believe in the ideals that have made America great. The founding fathers organized our country based on ideals, not just on landmass and natural resources. May we live up to that. I love America. God bless us and happy 4th of July weekend. My website is danclark.com. Join my tribe and uh, get some free gifts and training and let's make sure we keep in touch. Till next week, have a great day. Thanks again, Mark. You're an amazing human being. Thanks for being part of the show. Be sure to join Dan Clark next Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time for another edition of The Art of Significance on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Remember, you too can achieve the level beyond success.